0: Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. David Palmer, a radiation oncologist at the London Health Science Center in London, Ontario, and on faculty at Western University and David's not only an expert in the treatment of lung cancer with radiotherapy he's also an uh, internationally known uh, researcher leading multiple clinical research studies in radiation and lung cancer he's also multi-talented and is an author has written a book for cancer patients on how to navigate the cancer care system Uh, David's a supporter of Lung Cancer Canada, has spoken at uh, patient events in the past. Really uh, thrilled that he's uh, now joining us for this uh, podcast. And I'll be talking to him about the role of radiotherapy in lung cancer, but also about his book and his thoughts on the cancer care system. So, uh, David, welcome to the Lung Cancer Canada podcast series. And maybe before we get into specifics, maybe you could briefly outline what you do, what your average work week looks like, and... Absolutely. And thanks for having me on, Paul. So I'm a radiation doctor
1: and I'm a cancer researcher. Um, My average work weeks is about half the time doing research and half the time seeing cancer patients. I treat lung cancer patients and also patients who have head and neck cancers. And we use radiation uh, in, in the treatment of those cancers. So sometimes I'm treating patients who are just being diagnosed. Sometimes I'm treating patients who have their cancer returned. But my week is sort of split up between seeing patients, um, designing radiation treatments, and then seeing them afterwards for the five years of follow-up.
0: So radiotherapy's commonly used treatment in lung cancer. Maybe you could explain to our listeners who are predominantly patients, family members, can you explain what is radiation? How does it work?
1: So I tell people to think of radiation as a flashlight that you just can't see. And we shine that flashlight on the tumor to try to kill Some or all of the cancer. So radiation treatment can be used to try to cure lung cancer if it's a situation where we're trying to cure it. Um, And it's also used for situations where we can't cure a cancer, but we're trying to make a symptom better, like pain
0: or maybe a cough. So it's pretty versatile in that way. And when you say you're shining shining a flashlight that you can't see... So that means you're shining it at a specific area of the body, or is it more generalized?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very specific. So what happens is that if a patient needs radiation, they come in for a special scan to design the radiation and on that scan i outline a target for the machine to hit and then a patient comes in for the radiation and it's given daily for a certain number of treatments sometimes it's just a week sometimes it's six weeks of treatment and the patient lies down and during the radiation process they don't feel it it's just like having a chest x-ray there can be side effects over the course of treatment but during the radiation
0: itself you don't feel the beam Okay. Great. So now, as you know, I'm a medical oncologist, so I'm, I'm more in charge of the drug side of things, like immunotherapy, chemotherapies, targeted therapies. But I do get asked in my clinic a lot about radiation, and people ask me questions that I don't always know how to answer, and they'll say, you know, can I have CyberKnife or can I have brachytherapy or can I have proton therapy? And so I get asked these questions, and it seems that there's so many different radiotherapy options, different technologies, Could you explain a little about these different radiation options and how you would decide to recommend one or another? Mm -hmm.
1: So in the context of lung cancer most of those options are just different machines and for the most part they give us fairly similar results so you might have a center that has a cyber knife or a gamma knife or in the U.S. they have protons but the evidence isn't there to say that one is better than the other and I tell people it's much like coke versus pepsi and it's pretty much the same to everybody. But there might be some situations where one might be slightly better than the other, but for the most part, that has not been proven. And especially in the US, often it comes down to marketing. You know, centers in the US are trying to get patients It's very, very competitive, and they might have a big billboard saying, we have this new technology that we're gonna call whatever knife, and it sounds really good. But for the most part, it doesn't really matter what kind of machine that you're being treated on, as long as you're being treated at a center of expertise.
0: Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And uh, there are things that I'm sure you get asked in your clinic, as I get asked in mine, which seem to be based on uh, a current trend or something that's been in the media. And we have to take time to explain there's maybe something more robust needed than what's on the billboard.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's good that people are aware of what's in the media. But sometimes the, th- the reports in the media are for things that are going to come out in five or ten years and we just have to be patient.
0: Okay, so you've explained about what radiation is and how it works and some of the different options that, that might be available. So specifically with lung cancer, when or why would a patient with lung cancer generally need to meet a radi- onco- radiation oncologist like yourself? So most lung cancer patients will
1: meet a radiation oncologist at some point, and normally we break it down by stages, lung cancer, and the stage just tells us how far a cancer has spread. Usually for patients with a stage one, or two, or three cancer, we try to do surgery first if we can. After surgery, sometimes sometimes there's a role for radiation, but if a patient is not fit enough for surgery, or if a patient doesn't want to have surgery, then they would meet a radiation oncologist after. For patients who have more advanced cancer, what we would call stage four, where it's spread to other parts of the body, generally, historically, they would meet a radiation doctor if they're having symptoms. In that case, often we weren't trying to cure a patient just to slow the cancer down, and we would use radiation to try to improve a symptom. Nowadays, though, the paradigm has changed a little bit where if a patient has had a cancer spread to other parts of the body, we might try to target that to get rid of it altogether, but that's something we'll discuss maybe later in the podcast.
0: Right, and I think, uh, I think it's true to say that in people with stage 4 lung cancer are still more likely to receive radiotherapy than, than drug treatments.
1: Yeah, still more likely. And you know, with both radiation and drug treatments, we know that more patients should be seeing their chemotherapy doctors, their medical oncologists, or their radiation doctors. And we have to think about in Canada, how can we improve access, especially in areas where people might not live very close to a cancer hospital.
0: So you hinted in an earlier answer there that, um, uh, that now with s- there's a paradigm shift in, in the way we treat lung cancer. Um, what would you say have been the biggest radiation advances or radiotherapy treatment advances in the last couple of years that are changing that paradigm?
1: Well, I always tell people that our radiation machines have changed very, very dramatically in the past 20 years. Just like the phone in your pocket has changed Completely, if you look at phones from the 80s and 90s, what we can do now would be considered a miracle back then. It's almost the same with radiation, where we can target tumors that we couldn't target before very, very precisely. If a patient, for example, has a lung tumor that's moving a bit as the patient breathes, we can now track it in real time, see where it is, and hit it, even though it's moving, something that would be impossible. And we can deliver radiation doses that would be considered unsafe many, many years ago. But because it's so precise, we can now do it quite safely. So the biggest paradigm change, I think, in radiation has been the advent of a new treatment that we call stereotactic radiation. And that just means very, very precise radiation treatment. It's used for little, small cancers, a stage one cancer, when patients can't have surgery. And it's been shown in that situation to cure more patients than the older, less precise radiation. But the more exciting role, I think, for the stereotactic radiation has been in a setting where a patient has metastases, meaning cancer that's spread to other parts of the body. Historically, those patients have been considered to be incurable. So if your lung cancer had spread, let's say, to a bone, we would have said, well, this is already in your bloodstream being aggressive wouldn't be worthwhile, it puts you at risk of side effects, and they would be treated to slow the cancer but not to get rid of it. Now we have some new trials that suggest that in patients like that, if we target that spot with this stereotactic radiation, we can keep the cancer away for longer, and even in some patients, keep it away completely.
0: And you mentioned there stage one lung cancers where people who maybe can't have surgery for one reason or another might have radiation. Do you see a time in the future where surgery becomes a thing of the past for many people and radiation is for the those who could have had surgery anyway? It might be going that way. One thing we know about both radiation and
1: surgery is that the outcomes really depend on how expert your team is. And we're lucky here in Canada because we have surgeons who see a lot of patients and That's the biggest way to develop expertise. In other countries like the US, we have centers that are only doing a few surgeries a year and the outcomes are way worse. The complications are more and the risk of dying from the surgery is way worse. So I think surgery is always gonna have a role at the centers of expertise. Because just as the radiation is improving, so is the surgery. But what we're seeing now more and more is, at least in Canada, a close collaboration with the surgeons where 10 years ago, if a patient was high risk for having surgery let's say they had some lung problems and the surgeon was really worried about taking the cancer out 10 years ago they would have said oh we have no alternative so let's take a chance and roll the dice on the surgery nowadays a surgeon might say I don't need to take that chance let's do the stereotactic radiation and if it d- doesn't work you can come back later and do the surgery perhaps so I think it's really a team effort as we evolve together
0: and I think that's that's my experience as well in, in Ottawa, that it's a very tight team between surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, pathologists, nursing, ra- um, radiology, x-ray, it, it's all having to work together. So you mentioned stereotactic radiotherapy a couple of times as being the big advance, and that's now the smartphone version of radiation. In Ottawa, we have that. We're a bigger center, and, and in, in London, you do, but... Is it widely available across Canada, these new technologies, if if for people who live in more remote areas? Mm
1: -hmm. So it's widely available, but not universally available. So there are some centers like Ottawa and London, where I am, where it is very easy to access and there's a high level of expertise. And there are some centers where they will do stereotactic radiation, but they don't do the more complicated situations. Let's say a tumor is up against an important structure, that's a bit more high risk, and they might refer that But what a, to another center, but what I would say is that if you're listening to this podcast from somewhere where they might not have it, speak to your radiation doctor and ask them if they have the expertise or if there's someone that you could be referred to that could discuss it, and most of the time we find that people across Canada are very keen to refer when there's a technology that they, that they might not have themselves.
0: Right. Well, thank you, David, for that Lung Cancer Radiotherapy 101 that you've taken us through. Um, but let's switch tracks now because you're not a one trick pony. As I mentioned earlier, you're you're also an author. So could you tell me a little bit about how you came to be a writer?
1: So this was definitely a detour. I always thought of myself as a researcher and uh, a clinician Mm -hmm. and never thought that patient education was something that I would do. Um, But things changed. And what happened in my life is that when I was in my 30s, about five years ago, when I was 35, my best friend was diagnosed with colon cancer. And um, his name was Bob. And we grew up together. We went to high school together. Our kids um, are very close friends. And so so when Bob was diagnosed with colon cancer, I helped him through his treatment in terms of helping him to find uh, physicians who were very expert in what kind of cancer he had. I made sure that he went to a surgeon who was a high-volume surgeon. I made sure that his case was discussed at a tumor board. All these little steps that we can do to make sure people get high-quality care. And as we were going through this, Bob said to me, well, you know, Dave, not everybody has an oncologist as a best friend. This is but this is something that everybody can do if they know how to do it. And some of the things that he would do is read his CT reports and read his pathology report. And so in talking to Bob we realized that there was really a guidebook needed for patients to help get high quality care. What happened, unfortunately, is that after Bob's treatment was finished, I sort of stepped back, and without me really knowing it, he was lost to follow-up, so we say, meaning that he wasn't booked to go back for his follow-up appointments. And he had thought that because he didn't hear from his surgeon that he didn't need any more follow-up appointments, but he really did. And he and his family were planning a, a long trip of sabbatical for a couple of years, and before they left on this trip, we had this conversation where I said, hey, who's following you for your colon cancer while you're away on this trip and he said well i haven't seen anybody in several months and i didn't know i needed any more follow-up and sure enough when um, before he left we made sure he got scans very quickly because he was leaving in a couple of weeks and sure enough the cancer had come back at that time point fortunately at that time he still we still had a shot at trying to get rid of the cancer but ultimately it failed and bob did pass away about two years ago but so when we. Before Bob died, we managed to put together this book called Taking Charge of Cancer. And what it is, it's a step-by-step guidebook written for people who are not medical about how to get top-notch cancer care. And one thing that was really important to us is that that there was no financial motive here. We know that in the cancer world, people are selling things. And sometimes they're legit and sometimes they're not. And we thought it was very important to remove any suggestion that this could be done for a financial motive. And so what we decided was that all the author royalties that would have come, to me as the author, or instead go directly to our Cancer Research Foundation. So, as the book is sold, it brings money in that's used for cancer research.
0: Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. So, so the book um, Taking Charge of Cancer, I guess written for a, a similar audience to, to maybe people who are listening to this podcast. Um, so, you've explained what, why you wrote it. Have you, have you had feedback? Uh, has it been well-received? And uh, as a follow-on question from that, um, has um, maybe your experience of writing the book or your experience with Bob, has that changed you as a physician?
1: So first on the, the issue of um, with the feedback that we've had, so the feedback has been well beyond what we would have expected. It became a global and Mail bestseller um, in the summer that it came out and I'm not sure of the exact numbers of copies that it has sold but it is quite high and it's motivated people in a few different ways. It's motivated people to take charge of their cancer, to do things like get their pathology reports, to get their CT scan results. And one thing I talk about in the book is it It tells people to get something called a survivorship care plan. And what that is, is it's a map, roadmap for you at the end of treatment. So let's say you have a stage three lung cancer, which is often treated with chemotherapy and radiation and maybe some immune therapy after that at the end of treatment patients often don't know what comes next and what a survivorship care plan is it's a roadmap given to you by your doctors at the end of treatment to tell you okay for the next five years these are the scans you're going to have this is who's going to order them this is who you call if you have a question and I know that if Bob had had a survivorship care plan the issue of him being lost to follow-up would never have happened and these survivorship care plans have not been used much in Canada at all but in the U.S. they're now being mandated and so we're going to see a huge explosion in these survivorship care plans and this leads to the question about what kind of how it's changed me as a physician so when I learned about these survivorship care plans I started to use them myself and I remember going in with my very first patient with a survivorship care plan and it was a piece of paper and it had His diagnosis and his treatment, and then the next steps. That I was going to see him every three months for a certain period of time. But this guy, who happened to be the first one to finish treatment after I had learned about these survivorship care plans, struck me as someone who didn't care at all about his cancer treatment. He—it's hard to get him to come for his treatments. He seemed never to be interested in anything. I thought, okay, this is going to be a huge waste of time. I'm going to go in the room, and he's—it's just going to be a waste of effort. And so I go in there, and I. I say, hey, I've got something for you. This is a sheet. Here's your diagnosis. Here's the treatment you've had. Here's when I'm going to see you. Here's, what you. here's where you call if you have any issues. And after I go through, with it, go through it, I look at him, and he says, well, I have one question. And I said, oh, yeah, go ahead. He's like, can I have another copy of this? And so so I was definitely wrong in my assumption. So now I've tried to use survivorship care plans more and more and we're trying to integrate it into practice. It is a bit difficult because it can be a time consuming process. So what we're looking at doing is having situations where so some of our support staff can take that role with a patient to go through a survivorship care plan with them. But it's something you can ask your doctors about is how to get a survivorship care plan, how to get your pathology reports. And the book does go through these things step by step for you. So to answer your question, the feedback has been pretty good.
0: That's terrific. And so survivorship um, is, I guess, a huge part of cancer care now. And we've traditionally seen survivorship programs more in cancers which have had higher survivor rates, like breast cancer and, and, and colorectal cancer. Um, and because lung cancer historically has been such a rotten disease with poor outcomes, the number of survivors has been less. But with a lot of the new technologies, we're seeing more survivors. So I, for one, need to start thinking about survivorship care plans. Uh, for my patients, we see a lot more. So. Uh, um, Thank you. You've taught me uh, something new. Um, uh, final question, uh, David. Um, you know, most oncologists are not writing books like you have, or recording podcasts like we're doing now. But and obviously, we see this as important. How would you encourage your colleagues to do this kind of thing, or you know, or get engaged in in more uh, patient education and, and working in partnership with patients?
1: So I think there are two things we can think about here. The first one is that we as physicians and uh, and anyone in the healthcare team we have a responsibility to advocate for our patients right and you mentioned earlier that traditionally lung cancer outcomes have not been that great and 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 the people who we have not been able to cure, the people that we've lost over the years, they can't advocate for themselves anymore. The only people that can advocate for them are us and their surviving family members. And it's important for us to carry those voices forward because we've seen over the past 10 years that we can make progress in lung cancer, but the public is generally unaware of the issue of lung cancer. It's 433 deaths a, uh, a day in the US just from lung cancer alone. and we need to advocate on behalf of those patients but the second thing is that we need to counter a lot of the misinformation that's out there and physicians have traditionally been terrible at getting messages out we use big words we, we're we not definitive and we sort of skirt around the issue sometimes when we're asked questions whereas there are people out there who will say hey baking soda will cure your cancer even though that's totally untrue vitamin c will cure your cancer uh, And we need to counter that. So to encourage our colleagues, it can be very easy, just a Twitter presence, a social media presence, the occasional podcast, having patient information nights. I think we need to advocate for our patients and we need to advocate for
0: our specialties. Great, thank you. Well, thank you, David, for joining me today on the Lung Cancer Canada podcast series. Um, And I think that our community and I would, would commend you for going really above and beyond the traditional role of a physician to help the lives of those facing this disease. Thank you again for joining us. Lung Cancer Voices was made possible in part by a generous donation from Mariel and Nick Burris. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan and on Twitter at LungCancer_Can. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.